Welcome to This is Civity Radio Show. I'm Gina Valeria. Civity helps people in communities build a culture of respect and empathy across difference, and our interviews explore how people across the country and world are doing this in their communities. Today, we welcome Claudia Cohen, adjunct faculty at the International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution at Columbia Teachers College, and a founding member of both the Summit Interfaith Council Anti-Racism Committee and Anti-Racism Community Collaborative in Westfield, Scotch Plains, New Jersey. Claudia, welcome. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So first I want to talk to you. I actually want to jump right in. I know you've been working for a while on this concept of everyday dignity, and yes. you've really developed something interesting here. So you can, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so I've been a member of a community that was uh, really developed by a woman named Evelyn Lindner, uh, and others, other close associates of hers, who have uh, held up the concept of dignity and its uh, evil twin, humiliation. Evelyn started with the notion that humiliation underlies so much of the misery in the world and the um, impact of it shows up in terms of long-term conflict. So that is, if... Um, there's a you know a war, and the uh, uh, occupying forces make it their business to humiliate the, the local population. Uh, then that will plant a seed that will inevitably lead to um, the continuation of the war, and those who are humiliated will seek to uh, humiliate others. So she was has done a lot of writing and thinking about the impact of humiliation in sort of global um, and interstate conflicts. And as a social psychologist with a, a cognitive uh, orientation, I'm. it took me a while to sort of see that as not simply, to see dignity as not simply uh, something that's so important and in, you know, creeds of many religious communities, uh, the inherent worth and dignity of every individual uh, is part of the Unitarian Universalist creed, and I'm sure we could find it in many other uh, religious traditions, and also the UN Declaration of Human Rights uh, claims the inherent dignity of each individual as being a right, not something that we have to struggle for, but something that we're born with. So those are sort of grand and large-scale notions of dignity, and after a while, I started to really see it. I think that's part of the um, of how change happens is some small group of people names a concept and defines it and points out examples of it and then slowly hopefully more of us begin to see it and define it and hopefully build on what they've created. So what I started to notice was what as you so rightly noted I call everyday dignity which are the small acts uh in our everyday lives where we either express our um, acknowledgement of the dignity of another or act in a way that uh, damages their dignity. Uh, A very simple, kind of silly example, uh, I ride the subway as I commute from my home in New Jersey to my uh, office in New York. And, you know, the New York subway, I mean, we could spend... Uh, a very painful uh, amount of time talking about <laughs> how, you know, it, it was bad and now it's worse. But 
part I want to focus on is that when you get off the commuter train and there's a throng of people, you know, it's a funnel effect. You go from, you know, a very long line with hundreds of people and you're all going to try to converge on this either one or two person escalator or set of stairs, you know, depending on how how we uh, approach it. But it's very narrow and so the funnel effect is very large. And, you know, we might have been a group of um, commuters who would occasionally catch one another's eye, um, make a comment about the weather or how late the train was. So it was a, it's a fairly, um, there's a lot of camaraderie when you're on the train. As soon as we got off the train, it turned into this competition <laughs> and everyone was struggling to save, you know, 13 seconds on their commute. It's, it's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I felt that it's, it sort of switched from a somewhat cooperative or neutral situation to a highly competitive one. So I started to experiment, um, and this was based a little bit on the sort of theory of uh, Morton Deutsch, uh, which he called uh, the crude law of social relations, where he argues that if you lead with cooperation, you're more likely to receive it. It's a little bit like the golden rule, but with a different emphasis. Uh, And so I decided I would lead with cooperation and see if I could have a small, you know, through this little mini experiment, transform the understanding of the situation of those around me. So instead of pushing to be ahead of, you know, the uh, young woman with her earbuds in, um, looking harried, I would do the classic, you know, after you sign. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, people... The impact is is remarkable. I mean, of course, there are those who would ignore, you know, there are those with their head down who ignore me and don't know that I even, you know, made the offer and they proceed to, you know, plow ahead. But I'd say 80% of the people respond with making eye contact, with a smile. Uh, Sometimes they gesture no after you. Mm -hmm. So there's this miraculous moment where I feel I'm floating the idea that we are all equally worthy of being the first, the next one on the escalator, right? <laughs> that I don't have more right than you do. Uh, and uh, so I've, I've taken pleasure in, in trying that. I've also told my students about it and uh, asked them to experiment, and I've gotten some uh, uh, amusing stories uh, from them. Yeah, it's funny that when you're talking about, as a Muni commuter here in San Francisco, uh-huh. I do this... I do this just naturally. I mean, I'm a super competitive person, so I am also the one who wants to be off first. But I notice that if I do smile, and whether it's to say after you or whether it's to say, I'm late, can I go first? Like, uh-huh. the response is always really nice. And then it becomes lovely. Then all of a sudden you're a team, and all of a sudden it's... it's in, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, I've noticed that anecdotally. And wow, okay. So it's happy. The, the experiment is being conducted on both coasts. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And um and I, I notice it because I can I think we all can get so into our heads and all about us and I gotta get first and, and ooh, let me get my shoulder pa- just like you were describing. And I don't know what made me do it, but I I mean I guess you you, you a smile gets you far in life, right? So smile oh you can I can I just oh, oh go ahead, you go you know, and all of a sudden it's great. 
And yeah, um, so you're yeah. acknowledging them. You're, you're saying, you know, you're a person, you have needs. I'm asking you to do me a favor as opposed to out of my way, you know, with a, <laughs> an elbow. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's fascinating to, it's, it's it, you know, earlier you mentioned the idea of humiliation. And it's interesting because as a war tactic, as you were describing, or as a tactic of um, su- submission and all of that, it's well understood that humiliation is a tool of war, a tool of, of um, submission. And yet it's very fascinating that the idea of dignity or civity, as, as, we, as we're exploring uh, you know, yes. here, these ideas are seen as, oh, wishy-washy, or why are you even bothering to study that? And in reality, as you described, it is sort of the flip side of things that are well-established and accepted as tools that can seek ends. And so it's, it's yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by that. I just finished my dissertation and got a lot of pushback initially. They're like, why do you want to study relationships? That's so squishy. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I really think we need to look into this. And, um, and, and so it's wonderful that you and others are starting to focus on these concepts and that you've gone so far down the road to really name it, which as you say, is so important. Well, I'll give you another example of what you're what you're speaking about. That we we know the the negative harmful, but we're more oblivious or even um, dismissive of the of the constructive or the positive. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I suspect many listeners will be familiar with the construct of microaggression. That's yes. kind of become part of the the mainstream. And Daryl Wing Sue is a wonderful person as well as a brilliant researcher is a colleague of mine at Teachers College. And so um, I'd been hearing about microaggressions for for quite a long time. And it occurred to me recently when I was writing a chapter about everyday dignity that he talks about three kinds of microaggressions. And one of them is micro-invalidation, where you Mm -hmm. sort of treat the other person as a Mm non-person as opposed to um, uh, another form of... of, uh, microaggression that's more overtly hostile. But this is kind of a, you don't count, I don't acknowledge your humanity or your identity. And it occurred to me that, well, then maybe we're talking here in the work of dignity or civity about micro-validation. Mm-hmm. That these small, and it was, it's an interesting to me that I have not heard um, until very, very, very recently, I was pleased, I was on a panel with uh, students of, of um, of Daryl's, and I mentioned that I had begun to talk about microvalidations, and they said, oh, yeah, we've started to look into that as well. So I'm looking forward to, you know, comparing notes and seeing where they've gone. But for a very long time, the narrative was about the micro-invalidation, the micro-aggression. And it occurs to me, if you can, you know, damage the dignity of someone uh, in a small or very large way, well, then aren't we also vulnerable to being um, healed? Yeah. Uh, aren't, aren't there small acts that would that would either restore or reinforce? And I'm not sure yet which it is. I, I'm sure it reinforces. I don't know if we have the power to restore mm-hmm. dignity. I don't think that's well um, analyzed mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, to make a positive difference that says, yeah, I recognize you, you're a person, you're human, and you have this inherent worth, and I'm not better than you. 
Yeah, it's amazing. And it, and even in my short three years of doing, you know, I can, I come from this, I come to this as a professional who didn't do research until very recently. And even in the past three years, I've seen, <clears throat> excuse me, more discussion around this micro-inclusion uh, type, you know, type approach, which even three years ago wasn't being talked about. And I'm wondering, uh, now it is starting to be recognized, but there are still a lot of people out there who are like, why, why bother? We already know how to do this. This is just human nature. This is just natural. What is it about deliberately naming it and deliberately uh, intentionally engaging in everyday dignity, incivity? What, what is it that's so important for us? Why should we be spending time naming it and being intentional about it? Well, I think we, as we know more and more about human cognition, and I'm not even talking about the brain research, but even the you know cognitive psychology of the last thirty some years. Uh, Danny Kahneman, in his his great book Thinking Fast and Slow, documents how lazy we are. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know we um, a stereotype. You know, I'll take a stereotype that takes me a you know a nanosecond to process. Whereas if I stop and say, wait a minute. You know, that person has dark skin and is, you know, dark out. Um, what, am, what am I assuming? What would be different if they had lighter skin? You know, what, what, what images am I, am I uh, pulling up from my, you know, sort of social conditioning that may or may not be true? Let me use my higher order reasoning here. So I think that if we don't name it, then we're lazy and we rely on what what we've been exposed to and what we've been taught. So the very fact that it's not in the mainstream and not talked about, I believe it takes extra effort to make it part of the conversation so that it does become a habit, a habit of thought, and we start to see it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, just someplace I focus a lot on is the propaganda or fake news, as they want to call it now. But... um, the idea that fake news gets shared just at a rate that's crazily higher than actual information. And it's that same concept. It's easy because fake news is generally uh, black and white, you know, and, it, and it's easy to uh, uh, take in and, and then share, whereas an actual story is complex and has sides and is nuanced, and we don't have time for that. And And so when you say when you talk about our brains being lazy and that naming it will help us practice it, I think that's really an important concept for us. Trying to solve the problems that plague our communities right now. Yes. Plague is a good word, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, great, exactly. Um, So when you talk about how have you operationalized everyday dignity you've 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 studied the concept you've developed it you feel you know you've you've done some work on your own but how are you operationalizing it in your communities to help people learn it and practice it and get, get it out there into the world well as it turns out um i, I would say two things one is that i'm still looking for, I'm, I'm behaving sort of inductively i'm mm-hmm. looking for lots of examples because i think each time uh, we have another example to draw on, we learn a little bit more mm-hmm. about what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's part of it, uh, and that's why I'm so eager to hear other people's stories yeah. of what what like your story and and uh, and others that I've heard and read and 
um, am tuned to. Uh, I believe that the way it's showing up for me is with my um, deep involvement with Mm -hmm. anti-racism. I think that among many other things, many other ways of describing structural racism, uh, we could talk about the impact on those who are viewed as, um, because of uh, one of their uh, identifiers or one of their, one of the groups that they belong to. In this case, it would be our concept of of race, which, you know, we could get into whether that's biologically sound or not, but Mm -hmm. certainly in in our culture, Mm -hmm. we have constructs about race. And that I, I believe that ignorance about, well, two things. One is racism, however we define it, including structural racism, but also, um, you know, personal racism gives people permission to treat others without dignity, to treat them as less than human. And uh, so I've become uh, very passionate about finding tools and techniques to educate people so that they can see structural racism, see the origins of implicit bias, and learn to catch their own lazy processing, if you will. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's a lot more than that, but that's, you know, that's that's part of it. The social construct of racism that we, you know, have have uh, have woven into the fabric of our society, shall we say? We. Um, it, it's it's something my husband and I are of different races and we talk about this all the time and 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 for people who aren't experiencing it it sounds so far-fetched I think to a lot of people I mean maybe not to you and me but to people just walking around in their daily lives that there's this immediate not only do we have the social constructs of oh I'm supposed to view you this way because you look that way but also, you must be exaggerating because that, nothing even close to that happens to me. That is crazy. You know, there's this, there's this, I think, I think that's part of it too. And so tackling this issue is, is huge and also quite difficult. And so I am curious when you talk about working with people on institutionalized and structural racism and the biases we carry around with us, how do you tackle that in a way that actually people listen to or hear? Well, so uh, in a group. Yeah, sorry, I'm a big question, you know but I'm curious. Part, you got that part. Um, yeah. In a group, in a group that's diverse. Um, I guess this. Let me say first, as a, as a white woman, yeah. uh, I was in a group uh, within my religious community that was exploring. It was called Beloved Conversations, and this was about five years ago. And it was exploring race, and that was. Um, the first time that I had become, you know, after time, you know, decades ago when I'd been involved with civil rights, um, for the last number of years, I ha- I had not, and I had sort of looked away, consumed with other things. So in any case, we were in this group, and um, predominantly white, but with uh, several people of color, and we were looking at the um, history of of race within New Jersey, the state that my adopted state. Mm-hmm. And we were looking at things like when movie theaters in the town in which we were, uh, the religious community exists, were uh, integrated and when the first black official was elected. And I knew almost none of that, and nor did the other white people in the group. But the people of color in the group, the 
they weren't surprised by any of it. They knew it. Mm-hmm. And that struck me, that there's knowledge that I haven't had to accumulate mm-hmm. because I could look away. It hasn't been directly about me. Yeah. And then that made me realize that I don't want to be that. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to be blind to other people's reality simply because of um, you know a marker that's socially constructed that makes it not you know uh, Martin Deutsch talked about the the circle of inclusion like leave deserves justice you know and how big do you draw that circle which I think is intimately tied to dignity so in any case that made me realize that there were sort of two pieces to my experience one was the learning so what you know the facts about when were the movie theaters integrated in New Jersey in the 1960s oh my goodness that's very recent you know I thought that was only the south no not um and then being in conversation with people who are directly affected yeah yeah and you were willing so, to listen. And I think, you know, in terms of the, um, I think the dynamic of empathy, mm-hmm. that when you, it's one thing to read about it, but then when you sit across from someone who looks a lot like you and has had similar experiences in some realms, um, you know, maybe in education, in terms of their family composition, but then have this very different set of experiences mm-hmm. that I found, I don't anymore, but I found shocking um, about, you know, a, a man who was a VP of diversity at Johnson & Johnson, uh, lives in a neighboring town, recounting, and he's now in his, I'd say, early 70s, recounting how many times he's been stopped um, by the police in these affluent, mostly white communities. Mm-hmm. because he was driving while black. And mm-hmm. it's one thing to know that that happens, but to sit across from this man and say, oh my gosh, you know, he's, we have a lot in common. How could this happen to him? Mm-hmm. I think so, so the, the, the formula, if you will, or the, the combination that we're using that I find very helpful, and I think it goes back to your observation earlier about the power of naming, is to do the reading, you know, is to read... Um, uh, the new Jim Crow, you know, to read Ta-Nehisi Coates Between the World and Me. Uh, ultimately, you know, when you get deeper into it, read W.E. Du Bois and mm-hmm. James Baldwin so that things that we don't as whites who may be living in a quite segregated community, um, even if it's not, you know, we don't think we moved there because of that or we don't think it's intentionally segregated, but in fact it is proportionally, um, then to to have the knowledge to say, yeah, that wasn't just the South, it wasn't just slavery, and people have known about this for a very long time, so let me educate myself, and then let let me join with this group of people who's committed to you know, meet every week, once a week for five weeks, let's say, to talk about the reading. And then I get to see how my friends who are people of color um, experience it and how they experience those of us who are white trying to understand and sometimes things, ignorant things. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Never knew that. Really? How did you not know? You know that it is. It's sometimes it's like how that can't be possible, but it is right, possible. Right. It is. 
Yeah. Not in a hostile way, just right. in a disbelieving way, right? Yeah. You know, um, so, yeah, right. So I think the combination of edu- self-education on your own time, but with a curriculum, and yeah. then this opportunity to discuss with a, a multiracial group, uh, and then building that sense of community is, is very powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it helps people start to name what might be invisible to them at first because of their own experience yeah. and isolation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely true. And I think it with anything, you know, to take it away from something that can be charged like race, civics, you know, we have to teach civics. If we don't, as we've seen, people don't understand it. And, it, you know, it, the idea of naming something, teaching it, bringing people through it, helping people build empathy, understand different perspectives is is important. Um so I, so I know you're doing work in the community. Uh, we, we, we talked about, or we, I mentioned two uh, things you're doing in the introduction. I would love to learn a little bit more about how you're reaching out to the community uh, and, and what that work involves. Okay, so the, the first um, community project began about uh, three, four years ago in Summit, which is a, an affluent community in Union County, New Jersey, a commuter town for New York. Uh, and the Summit Interfaith Council, so that was a, a religious, a, a group of clergy. Um, I think there's uh, somewhere between 15 and 18 houses of worship that come together once a month and try to find ways to speak as a single moral voice. Mm-hmm. And they, um, after Ferguson and Trayvon Martin, and, and I, you know, I won't go on, but <laughs> events that caught the attention of the nation, um, they said, we need a better response. And as it so happens, there's a black Baptist church in town. There actually are a couple, but there's one that's very large, um, uh, many thousand members. And so on Sunday morning, uh, the community is far more integrated than it is during the week. Um, and so that we had a built-in population, even though the town is... Uh, not very diverse, maybe, you know, 8% uh, people of color. Mm-hmm. For, uh, I should say, 8% African Americans and, and another, you know, 10, 11% um, Latina. Okay. Latino, which is not race, but does, you know, involve Ethnicity, yeah, yeah. being true. Thank you. Yeah. Anyway, so t- I, I say that only to say that because of the, the, um, segregation that we experience, uh, certainly in New Jersey, if you base a program in a town, it may be difficult to have the reach to bring in uh, people of both races mm-hmm. or, you know, of multiple races. Mm-hmm. So in Summit, that was uh, addressed because the clergy formed a uh, an anti-racism committee and began to do various kinds of programming, films, book discussion groups, and launch these dialogue circles. Uh, we call them dialogue circles on race. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were created by uh, one person who is uh, an academic, a um, diversity leader at uh, a, a women's college in the Northeast, someone who is the VP of diversity at a large company, uh, and someone who... Um, uh, a white man who had led um, dialogues across religious religious lines and to some extent racial lines 
they came together and developed the initial curriculum, and we've been offering, now we've modified the curriculum, we've added a sort of, um, that was the sort of the 1.0 was what we had done for the past three years, we've now added a 2.0, so the reading is more challenging, and people have already experienced, you know, five weeks of this kind of conversation and self-exploration, so we're able to go deeper, um, and we've so the, the, you asked about how do you engage people. So in yeah. Summit, it's been primarily through the houses of worship. Although none of the content is religious, it's, um, you know, uh, we don't, there's no mention of, uh, of faith or God or, so it, it's, it's separated from that. However, uh, the goal is to create what some people call the beloved community, which, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to subscribe to any particular religion to want to uh, to create. And over the last three years, we've reached about 300 people. We've had six what I call semesters with multiple groups um, each of those semesters. We have not had trouble finding people. We have not had trouble finding people who want to participate. What we have had trouble with is keeping up with the demand for people who have been in a dialogue circle, the 1.0, and then say, now what? <laughs> what do you have for me now? Right? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and we're like, oops. <laughs> so we finally had to develop, you know, so, oh, is this, there's a book discussion. We were showing a film, but people wanted more, um, you know, discussion, which is a wonderful problem to have. So, we did develop this uh, this follow up curriculum. Mm-hmm. So after seeing how powerful it's been and the impact in the summit community, I wanted to transport it to where I live, which is uh, a town called Westfield, and there are a couple of uh, anti racism groups uh, that have sprung up in both Westfield and in in Scotch Plains, the neighboring town, uh, which gravitate a lot to Martin Luther King Day celebrations and uh, events like that, but had not done these ongoing you know, dialogue circles. And a couple of years ago, I co-facilitated a town meeting in Westfield where we had a panel uh, discussing race and some black leaders in the community, including religious leaders, but also the white chief of police, the white school board president, the black uh, principal of the high school, as I said, some black um, businesswomen and men, mm-hmm. uh, rabbi, uh, talked about to a you know a, a hall full of about 120 people talked about race, and there was great interest in continuing the conversation, and that was two years ago. It's hard to create those kinds of events on an ongoing basis. Mm-hmm. So it occurred to me that bringing dialogue circles where we've already got the mechanics and we know how to do it would be um, sort of an answer to the question of how can we find more ways yeah. to talk to one another. And we're now engaging the religious leaders. In fact, I'm going to a meeting tomorrow of uh, the clergy to get their support, it's not, uh, it didn't grow out of their uh, organization, but we're, we, we value the um, sort of moral uh, uh, stance and the respect uh, that many uh, leaders in the clergy 
you know, bring bring to bear on yeah. the issue. So we're hoping to get their support. So let me pause for breath. I suspect ah! you have I do. observations, I have a few questions. comments, <laughs> questions. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's it's interesting. I, I guess it's it, it's definitely a natural thing to connect with religious leaders because they're so entwined with the community and so connected with their with their uh, parish or their 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 group. Um, so, so I, I think that's natural, and and it's and and how have they been about the fact that there's a non-religious approach to this? Although I'm sure they can they can find a way to connect their teachings to what you're doing. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've been very pleasantly surprised. I've also learned about what some of the, the racial justice work that some of the denominations have done for a long time uh, that I didn't know about. So it's been an eye-opener for me that's pointed out, I guess, two things. One is that we are not only, you know, separated by ethnicity and race, but by, to some extent, religious community. So we know what's going on in our, you know, in our club, but um, (laughs) we don't necessarily know what's going on elsewhere. So that's another benefit that we're looking for is to create a larger moral majority, if you will, um, across religious communities and publicize, you know, if the congregational church is having, showing a film or having uh, a discussion, let's invite the synagogue and the Roman Catholic Church and the Methodists and the Presbyterian, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and so... um, so I found I was hesitant at first because of the reason you're uh, kind of alluding to, but I found um, that people so far have been willing to come together. Um, and so, for example, on the Interfaith Council, um, because there are several synagogues in Summit, uh, no, if if a prayer is offered, this is not the dialogue circles. We don't offer prayers in the dialogue circle, mm-hmm. but in that body that helped to create it, if there is a, a prayer, it can't mention. They've agreed not to mention Christ because that would be, you know, excluding the Jewish uh, clergy in the room. So mm-hmm. I think people, you know, work ways to both honor their own tradition but acknowledge that different people follow different traditions. Mm-hmm. And then we, again, are circumspect about not making any assumptions about being connected to a particular religious community or any religious community uh, to be part of the dialogue. Mm-hmm. I think that's very important. Yeah. And how have you, What ha- I'm curious about the response, and I ask this with uh, some framing in my head. Uh, one is... Uh, one piece of framing is people come to this stuff who are already somewhat interested in reaching out. Uh, that's an assumption I'm making. Sure. Um, and two is we're in this very um, ugly time societally. You know, certainly on the ground, it may or may not be that way in one's community, but societally, we're in a pretty ugly moment in our history. Yeah. And, and and I am curious to know who's in the room and who are you drawing and 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 talk a little bit about that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's the case. Um, I, I would I would say we attract people who decry racism and see themselves as not racist. However, um, 
how, do they decry racism out loud, and how do they define racism? So people come who are well-meaning, but often poorly educated about race, white people, mm-hmm. poorly educated about the, the true history of structural racism. So there's a lot of, even though it's very rare that someone attends the first session and doesn't come back, I, I probably... If I had to guess, I'd say that out of the 300 people, maybe that happened four or five times. Mm-hmm. So even though people are, some people are uncomfortable, and we talk about that, we you know we have um, guidelines for the discussion, and one of them is lean into discomfort. It's it's got to be uncomfortable. I mean, it is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. See, we're talking about painful things, and it's uncomfortable to know how much you may not know. Yeah. You know that sort of awakening that I described previously. So, so what I would say is people who are there want to be there, but they may not fully recognize the work they're going to be doing mm-hmm. as they confront how as a white person they're affected by um, structural racism. And then for my black colleagues, um, what I what they report is that um, both a deep appreciation that this group of people, this group of white people, is taking race seriously and willing to engage, and the frustration that they have to keep telling their stories over and over again. Yeah, yeah. What what I hear from... my husband and, and other people I know who are black is why, why is it my responsibility to educate you? And yeah, I'm exhausted. I'm frustrated. And, uh, it, 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 you know, I mean, people who are doing the work, but have that same frustration and, 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 exactly. and that's real and needs to be honored as well. Exactly. I think what we started to, what I started to hypothesize, in fact, I've called together a group of the facilitators for this week for this new, the more advanced curriculum, what we call Mm -hmm. 2.0. That's when we read W.E.B. Du Bois. That's Mm -hmm. when we read Audre Lorde. That's when we read some of the really more challenging black intellectuals. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't exclude them intentionally, but they didn't make their way into the 1.0 curriculum, I Mm -hmm. would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what what I'm finding is that in the 1.0 curriculum, it's absolutely critical to have people of color share their experiences, as we were talking about before, that you know, building relationship, the humanity that you see in the other person. For after that, in this 2.0 curriculum, I think some of the white people can be ready to caucus, to, to meet only with white people, mm-hmm. to talk about, okay, now that we know, what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And it relieves you know, our black brothers and sisters from having to uh, tutor us. Now, that doesn't mean we don't get back together and, you know, as a whole group in the future and, you know, share learnings and get feedback, Mm -hmm. but not all the work. The way that for people who are starting this journey, I think it's critical for white people to have Mm -hmm. the experience, the lived experiences of people of color in the room. But once you, if one is committed to the journey and begun it, I think it's possible to do some of that work a lot, maybe, I don't know how much, but a a portion of that work (laughs) with white people, you know, with other people who have your experience and figure some of that out. Uh, 
in that context, which I'm finding kind of, um, I'm excited about that. You yeah. know, that's a, that's a, a new observation. I didn't know that that, you know, I didn't know that we would find that. That's interesting. What, what excites you about it? Well, I think, you know, I don't think it's the responsibility of people who've been oppressed by structural racism to figure out what we who have had privilege uh, need to do about it. On the other hand, absolutely, I want to be in conversation. Uh, and I've made some friends that I, you know, I value their insights um, and they happen to be black. So it's not that I want to only work with white people, but it makes it, it seems, it seems appropriate. It seems right. Um, and it might be that there are certain white people we could reach in a different way. And I'm, I'm really sort of thinking out loud here because <laughs> I haven't taken it fully that next step mm -hmm. as to why that's that's exciting to me. I think it opens up opportunities. I guess yeah. that would be the, the simplest answer. But I think also it may be that there are certain white people we might invite in that we wouldn't want people of color to have to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> that's to get them to a certain point before they expose, get, get, expose them to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the people that, you know, uh, right, you asked before, like, who's in the room? Well, maybe we could expand, um, you know, work harder to get people who aren't sure why they want to be there. But yeah. so far we've been, uh, you know, pleased to work with those who are delighted to find yeah. this opportunity. Yeah, and I think it has to start somewhere, and, and, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, people who have been thinking about this on their own, uh, who want to make a difference, who are willing to do the curriculum, of course, they're going to be more likely, you know, to be open and willing to do it. And and there's a lot of work to do out there. And of course, we have to we have to figure that out. If we'd figured it out, we'd have solved our problems, right? So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but that's, Absolutely. yeah, but that's really exciting. And it's, it's wonderful to hear that people are committed to doing that. I'm, I, I want to ask you, um, why this work? You're passionate about it. You've given so much time to it. You're naming a, a new way to think about dignity. You've there's there's just, there's so much that you've given to this effort. Why? Why? And now you mentioned earlier. It, was that the story you mentioned earlier? Like having a revelation that people had different experiences. Was that was that the moment, or was it before that? Well. It's never made sense to me. Yeah. It's it's always troubled me that um, that there is a a hierarchy uh, of you know power and and privilege and the way people are treated. Um, you know, I went to a brotherhood camp when I was fifteen and met black youth who were not, you know, in my school system, and that had an impact. Um, I, I'm not really sure. Uh, I just know that when I think about dignity, I think about people who are not treated with dignity. And it's it's partly selfish. You know, I want to be treated with dignity. Mm -hmm. So I want to um, proselytize, mm -hmm. I think, uh, and when I see egregious examples, to say,
say, well, wait a minute, you know, if, if they're doing that to that group of people, we could be next. You know, what, what, you know, why are we exempt? So, you know, there are many very um, thoughtful sayings about, you know, first they came for the... Right. So, you know, so there's a little bit of that. Um, and it just seems very unambiguous to me that people, if we believe in the inherent worth of dignity of all people, then we got to make it happen. You know, we can't, that's so fundamental. So that's, that's as good an answer as I've got right now. That's incredible. If we believe in the dignity of every, everyday dignity of people, we have to, I'm going to quote you directly, I promise, but we have to make it happen ourselves. I think that's, that's incredible and really important. And I also really appreciated the way you defined selfishness there too, because I don't think everyone defines selfishness that way. Some people feel threatened or they feel like, oh, better them than me, you know, and their selfishness takes a different route. And so I think also, you know, helping reframe selfishness for people might be something we can explore. Like, don't you want to be treated well too? Well, do this and you'll, you'll get what you want. You know, anyway, I I, I thought that was awesome. (laughs) Thank you. I I think that I, I, my sense is that, or my understanding is that something that um, I don't know if in civity you would name it that way, but yeah. I think there is a sense of, you know, we have to be the, we have to behave the way we want other people to behave. We, you know, we want to set up a context where, you know, we treat each other so that we get the best from one another and um, create a space where uh, we can, you know, minimize damage and maximize you know, growth and, uh, and benefit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you just said if, if we want, even though civity doesn't name it quite that way as selfishness, I think the, when we at civity talk about being intentional, um, Mm -hmm. it is pushing it out there into the world. Like if I want this to be in the world, if I want it to come back to me, I have to be intentional about putting it out there in the world myself and um, and so I, it's not quite the same thing, but I think that idea of if, if we're intentional about it and we're doing it, then maybe other people will pick up on it and they'll take it with them, too. Um, and so on that note, I you know, you're doing all this uh, deep work with people who are willing to sort of tackle a curriculum, read and discuss. You're doing your own experience experiments with everyday dignity and uh, pulling stories together. So so I ask you for those of us out there who are lazy and have things to do and, and, and <laughs> how can we contribute to the fostering of civity, of everyday dignity? dignity of, of micro inclusions for one of my closest childhood friends. Uh, she said, she, I'm, I am, uh, middle of the road, progressive leaning. She's a Republican and she trusts me enough to say, look, I've got six kids. I'm busy. Just tell me which Republican to vote for. Like, like she, like she, she wants to do the right thing. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. I over, I overdid yeah, that. Yeah, but, no, yeah. no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I think that's a great question. I, uh, uh, one strategy would be to, you know, encourage each of us to look at when we feel um, microaggressed against, when we feel, you know, whether it's road, you know, we react with road rage, uh, whether it's, you know, I can't believe my sister-in-law said that about me on Facebook, you know, or whatever (laughs) whatever it is, is. (laughs) where you feel like, how dare they? 
uh, and offended, think whether it feels like a, a dignity infraction mm-hmm. and see if that fits. And if it does, then say, how would I want them to treat me? Yeah. How could they either have you know, not done that in the first place or how could they repair it? Um, and then think about, so when do I do that? Mm-hmm. And and how could I do it differently? And how much impact might that be having on um, on someone else? I mean, just another thought is if you have six kids, you're probably very concerned. I know you don't. I mean, I don't think right, you right, do, right, anyway, my friend. Yeah, <laughs> your friend. Um, she's she's probably very involved in how her children have been treated by others and the concept mm-hmm. of bullying. And um, so I think this notion of othering and less than and non-inclusion is something we all live with. Mm-hmm. So it's about how do you reverse it? You know, if you're humiliated, do you humiliate the next person? Or do you say, boy, I know what humiliation feels like, and I don't want to be about promoting that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's great. And those are, that's an easy, not easy, but that is a thing people can do who are busy is just reframing it inside, being conscious about how it is impacting us and then deciding to send energy back into the world a little differently than it was imposed upon us. And that can yeah. happen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we are coming to our t- end of our time together. Is there anything, and it felt like two minutes for me, I don't know about you. But <laughs> <laughs> me too. Is there anything else you want to say that you feel it's important for people to know? Well, the other thing I would, I would ask or put out there is if you live in a community that you think would be enriched by having uh, dialogues about race, we can make a connection. Sure. Um, And because I'm, my vision is to help communities do the discernment and figure out what it would look like to do that in their community Mm -hmm. and what kind of support would they need. Um, Because, you know, any one of us can only be in so many places, but if we sort of plant the seed and then it gets cultivated in, in that community and they make it their own, um, wouldn't that be great? You know? yeah. So yeah. Uh, I hope that efforts take root. Um, I know there are efforts going on already that are similar, not identical, but similar to this, um, and I just encourage anyone who's interested to uh, to take it seriously and see where you might find some, some support to make it happen. Yeah, I think that's really important. And whatever you connect with, it's, 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 this work is more critical than ever. It's always been critical. It's become more critical than ever. Um, yes. yes. <laughs> we have been talking today with Claudia Cohen, adjunct faculty at the International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution at Columbia Teachers College and a founding member of both the Summit Interfaith Council Anti-Racism Committee and Anti-Racism Community Collaborative in Westfield Scotch Plains. You have been listening to This is Civity Radio. I'm Gina Valeria, and join us again next time. Thank you so much.